0: Welcome to Her Story, the history of Southeast Asia told from her perspective. We'll discover historical figures, matriarchal societies, and contemporary female icons, and maybe learn about ourselves along the way. I'm Agas Ramirez and this is Season 2. We're back from the long, much-needed break and ready to continue our exploration into the hidden worlds of Southeast Asian women with diverse topics and interviews centered on the colonial period before World War II. Today we're talking about Filipino girlhood in American colonial Manila, 1908 to 1939. Girl studies or girlhood studies is a developing field of historical research in the Philippines, says Tala Wong of the Ateneo de Manila University. Her MA thesis on Filipino girlhood in American colonial Manila explores the emergence of the Filipino girl and by doing so aims to give her a voice long denied in Philippine history and historiography. Educational materials and print media from 1908 to 1939 reveal that girlhood was an ideological battlefield for adults, colonial and local, male and female. In this episode, we're going to find out what it is about girlhood that makes for such a vibrant discourse. Welcome, Tala.
1: Hello, everybody.
0: Hi, so um, a bit of your background, you are a history instructor? Yes. How long I have a, you been? I think
1: I'm a lecturer, actually.
0: Lecturer. And how long yeah. have you been lecturing?
1: My gosh, like nine years. Right. And <laughs> this has been
0: in Ateneo the entire time. Yeah. Right. Okay. And so what inspired you to write this thesis? Where did this idea come from?
1: Actually, I don't know if she knows it, but it was because of my mom. Mm-hmm. And it was specifically because she told us when we were growing up, because I have two younger sisters, and when we were growing up, she was always on her case about knowing how to do certain household chores properly, like folding clothes, knowing how to do the laundry, the dishes, setting the table, and stuff like that. And she would always say it was because we were girls. Mm -hmm. And then at some point, I don't know when, I was probably really young. I asked her, why doesn't, you know, why doesn't dad have to do these kinds of things? And why doesn't he have to learn how to do these kinds of things? And she's like, Well, he's a guy. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Huh. <laughs> why is that? Why why are we like why are me and my sisters expected to learn how to do these household related things and my dad gets a free pass? And that is that is the spark, honestly, that uh, that set me on this this long, very long journey to you know writing these, uh, writing this thesis and uncovering all of these stories about girlhood in the past. So well, you never know, you yeah. never know where your M.A. thesis or your dissertation topic is going to come from.
0: So something so simple as seeing sort of an imbalance in your household led you on this journey to. Um, several forms of literature that you looked at for this thesis. So first things first, what is a girl and what is girlhood?
1: Okay, so actually, and this is something that I also mentioned in the thesis because that's what we're going to be talking about. Girlhood is a very nebulous topic. like It's so hard to pin down even girlhood scholars have a hard time agreeing on what makes a girl so for the purposes of my thesis i went to i used some legal documentation i used some laws about marriage and from dating to the spanish colonial period and generally what i say in my work is that a girl is uh, a female a young female who is um, not married and does not have children, and usually she is under the age of twenty-five. And it's very broad when you look at the literature because some documents will say girls. Yeah, you know, they will specifically use the word girls, and they'll refer to uh women like females who are like twelve years old. And when you look at magazine articles or uh, magazine. Advertisements, you'll see um write-ups or like copy that is asking for submissions for girls and then they'll give an age range and then sometimes it goes up to like 25 years old. So the top like what the definition of girlhood is very contentious and it really varies depending on the girlhood scholar that you're asking. But for me, that would be how I defined it an unmarried woman young woman who does not have children and is under the age of 25.
0: And for the purposes of this study you looked at mostly Christian females of Filipino ancestry.
1: Yes. To further so- like set mm-hmm. brackets on what a girl is according to my to my to my work So you
0: begin this thesis talking about the physical isolation that most women experienced throughout history. So you mentioned the tradition of the binocot to the seclusion in monasteries during the Spanish period. How did this mindset affect what we know about girls and girlhood, this sort of passive um, uh, sort of onlooker in history, never really at the forefront
1: I think it's a very out of sight, out of mind thing. Like that definitely affected how much we do know about girls during this period of history, during the Spanish colonial period, because um, a lot of a lot of young women are studying, but they're cloistered. And they're not really writing about themselves. So even if they do know the basics of how to read and how to write, they're not applying it in a self-interested way. And because of that, I think our knowledge today of girlhood during that period suffers. So I would say that seclusion, like um, seclusion, and maybe the lack of a the lack of a medium in which to write maybe a lack of self-interest in putting down i like putting down their life stories into physical writing that definitely affected how how little we know of girls today
0: there's a lot of ground to cover here there's a lot of history so I'm just gonna pick out certain things that jumped out to me. You wrote of the Spanish period that the body was considered a site of sin and temptation by the spanish friars and the girl or a woman's body even more so can you give us examples of what that means for the philippine context
1: so for the for example when it comes to fashion the ways that pre-colonial Filipinos were described was very uh was very shocking to the to the Spanish colonizers and foreign visitors when they arrived here because they were like, Why are they wearing so little? Why aren't they as covered up as the women back home in Europe? So that was especially very scandalizing because they're like, oh no ankles, oh no legs. You know, these are things that should be for you know for the Spaniards, things that should be covered up and that leads into like a whole other discussion of spanish colonial fashion and religion like uh, what religious women wore during that time but it was pretty much the spanish applying their value system especially when it came to modesty and fashion to foreign filipino bodies so when the Spaniards come, you see a transition in how people are dressed. There are, you know, no more bahags, or if there are bahags, the top part is covered. And women are more conscious about their their private parts. And you see that you, you can't, really see, can't really see breasts anymore. They're, like, everything is covered up.
0: So you noted things like the link to fashion when... The Spanish came here, um, we began to wear tapis, panuelo, the veil, but there was a disconnect between the imposed Spanish modesty on women and a cultural um, propensity for Filipino women to actually be in public life because exactly. women had um, jobs that were in the public eye. They did not stay at home. They were cigarette vendors. Um Cigarera, vendadora, tendera, bordadora, costurera. Um, so, uh, how did that affect um, growing up in that period?
1: So, okay, so this is actually super interesting because, like I said, we, there are restrictions on dress or there are like guidelines on how to dress modestly. But there's also this group of women who are very visible and out and about. And they have, like you mentioned, so many of these very public facing jobs. And like I didn't go too much into it, but I would hazard a guess that class would probably play a role in all of this. Like if you're a middle class to a higher, if you're a middle or higher class lady, there are certain moral and social expectations of you. And it seems to me, and this is not something I've done extensive research on, but this would be my best guess, that if you are of a, of a lower work, if you're of the working class, that's not really expected as much of you.
0: Another important thing I saw here was the role of education. And Spanish colonial education was largely for Spanish girls and mestizas. So Filipino girls would have to wait until 1863 to enjoy widespread public schooling. Can you give us more context? What was education for girls like at the time?
1: It would be generally the same as what the boys were learning in public school. So that that was uniform in the sense that they were learning how to read and write and count.
0: And I think, a lot of Catholic teachings also in school at the time.
1: Definitely, yeah, because that would still be like, even if this was a liberal uh, policy to educate everybody in, in the Philippines, it was still you know under uh, the Catholics, the Spanish.
0: And um, so there, there was a passage of a royal decree that called for the, the establishment of a network of primary schools And they wanted both boys and girls to be not merely proper, but ones that were also good and virtuous in accordance with Catholic teachings. So as we know, that changes very rapidly with the coming of the Americans. And so really, the focus of your thesis is American colonial Philippines, which you said was an especially interesting period for Filipino girls. So how did this Mission Civilizatrice, or the civilizing mission of the US, impact the Filipino girls?
1: It introduced uh, quote unquote progressive American values to Philippine society and by extension to Filipino girls. It also introduced ideas of modern, like quote-unquote modernity and this notion of how to be a civilized person civilized of course by the definition of americans and these were things that were through lessons in school and through other means uh, taught to filipino girls
0: so one thing you mentioned was the gibson girl who was a a sign of a modern progressive civilization as opposed to a static society. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was very interested uh, to learn that the, when the St. Louis World's Fair in 1904 took place, they actually took um, Visayan, so called Visayan Gibson girl types, to be exhibited there.
1: Yeah. And this was, of course, I think everyone knows about the the very infamous St. Louis World's Fair exposition when it comes to Filipino representation where they had, where they showed our indigenous people in their, in their quote unquote, natural habitats. And to contrast how backwards we were, uh, uh, sorry, to contrast how progressive the Philippines was becoming under colonial rule, they had like a they had a band playing American standards. They had children saying their ABCs. And apparently, there were also, yeah, Visayan Gibson girls to show that, hey, American culture has taught even our girls how to be more American, how to be more progressive and civilized according to American standards.
0: And I guess the juxtaposition of um, the so called Visayan Gibson girl types with the. Um, the dog meat eating uh, exhibits at the time must have been a very jarring image that really sold the idea that um, American colonial rule was doing something great in yeah. in the Philippines. So I'm going to go back to education. Uh, the census of the Philippine Islands for 1918, which was a decade after the establishment of the state university, reveals that of the 3,336 3, students, 618 of them were girls, and English was a medium of instruction. Can you share um, some interesting things about education during this time?
1: Hmm, something that I find interesting is the even in the earliest years of American colonial education, what? people what filipinos associated and i guess what american colonial officials and representatives here considered civilized was a knowledge of english Mm -hmm. and if you were well versed in english if you were knowledgeable in english enough to speak fluently without making mistakes to be able to express yourself verbally uh in in written form, cleanly in English, you were considered a very uh, Alta person. You were considered a very, not Alta, but like a civilized person, a very modern person, someone who was very with the times. And I think this is not obviously connected strictly to girls. And I think that's something interesting because we still have that mindset today.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Something Uh, that has endured, yes. And the fact that we're conducting this interview in English, well, that's
0: also because um, most of the listeners of the podcast are actually outside the Philippines. So, mm. so much, like more than sixty percent of the people who listen are Filipinos who are born abroad, or um, just general, you know, people who like history but are not necessarily Filipino. Those, so it is encouraging in a way that there's a lot of um, interest in it. But there's also that they, they, the, the, the way that we're so comfortable expressing ourselves in English is something that um, has injured. Uh, in the thesis, you s- there was a line, with a good education in English, any child, even poor children of laborers, could succeed in becoming professionals if they were bright and studied hard. So it's sort of like a... I guess this is a parallel to an American dream that. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. So there was that transplantation, but you you could only succeed if you knew English, <laughs> and um, there are remnants of that today. Oh yeah. Um, also, there was a an Act Number no. Seventy Four in nineteen oh one. Free public education to both boys and girls who are now also free to pursue higher education in liberal arts, law, pharmacy. Um, I'm going to go back to pharmacy later because I know there's something very interesting about that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, though, though boys consistently outnumbered girls, um, there was a quote from a colonial official that I wanted to discuss. Within a few years, the people will, without doubt, have learned that it is as important to educate the girls as it, as it is the boys. Mm-hmm. So, and there were um, you had a very long list of all these home economics guidebooks. Yeah, that were present at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, tangentially, my great grandmother, as uh, looking her through her things. And um, I saw a cookbook that was produced, um, I believe, at uh, CEU or Mm -hmm. a similar university, um, which was um, dedicated to her. And the introduction of that uh, cookbook said that this cookbook is to help the the young woman fulfill her most important role in life, (laughs) which is... Um, managing the nutrition of the home. And so when I was reading all the passages from the guidebooks, I was reminded, I I have a book like this. I, I've seen a book like this. So, um, Which goes back to why <laughs> you wrote this thesis in the first place, um, which I didn't know. But, um, well, the manuals published by the Department of Public Instruction did not merely mean to instruct Filipino girls, and how to properly manage a home, but rather how to properly manage a home as an American girl and a woman, as an wo- uh, American woman would. Um, and then the other thing after education was sanitation. Yeah. Um, can you uh, discuss that a bit?
1: Tangent. Going back to what you said about your great grandmother's cookbook, my sister is actually doing her master's thesis on colonial cookbooks as a tool of colonization
0: uh, <laughs> that's an interesting topic because there's a lot of co- values value setting it's not it's
1: not just food it's not just a recipe it's yeah exactly it's your duty it's your and work you see, and you see how ma- material culture changes over time as you read cookbooks from like the ninety, from like the late 1800s, 1890s, to the 1900s, to 1920s. You see how ingredients, even instructions, change over time and what kinds of dishes are being served also changes over time. I just was reminded <laughs> after you mentioned your great-grandmother's cookbook and I couldn't find a place to butt in. But,
0: <laughs> but, also, but also, I noticed that many of these... Um, Many of the things that were discussed in these uh, guidebooks or these cookbooks, which um, you deal with in the idea of the domestic economy, Mm -hmm. a lot of them were very practical. Some of them, some of them, I was like, maybe they should have taught me that. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that should have been mentioned in my education at some point. You know, things like how they would. uh, how they would make soap or get stains out or... Yeah. You know, it's Like some of these, it, it,
1: not it, just for girls, right? Like, like I was going through it again and they actually teach you how to do basic first aid and not just like how to make someone feel better when they have the flu, because that's also taught, but how to like set bones. Honestly. Yes. Yes, like, there wow. was
0: basic first aid, and you know that's that's valuable not just for girls. That's um, very valuable for everybody. Yeah, everybody, and um, many of um, children today, I think, would be <laughs> would really benefit from Wouldn't some benefit. of this. Would yeah. really benefit from some of this practical education. But um, in the context of American colonial education, it was really setting these values up, and that brings us to sanitation because the Filipino girl, it appears, was the main um, agent of the sanitation measures and doctrines of American cleanliness.
1: Oh, so I found it interesting because, okay, um, nobody's done this, so this was a lot of, like, writing this thing was just... um, searching blindly in the dark for knowledge and what i was able to find was that a lot of the ideals of domestic science or euthanics or home ec, however you want to call it came from three main writers uh three main writers in england and the united states so these are Catherine Beecher, Isabella Beaton, and Ellen Richards. So these three ladies form not just the basis of women's education in the 19th century, but also ideas of home economics or domestic science. And in doing so, they kind of created what the ideal girl slash woman should be. Hmm. And part of the, a big part of, understanding domestic science or home economics is that everything is on the girl the girl Mm -hmm. has to know every little thing about the house because um in one of the in one of the in one of the texts i think it's the 1908 domestic science handbook they say that how the housekeeper needs to be the best educated, the most skilled, the most intelligent member of the family. So, mm-hmm. you know, no no pressure to girls out there. And this was needed. She needed to be the most educated because she was the one who was gonna educate everybody else. She was the one who was going to tell her parents who couldn't who couldn't understand English, who didn't go to school, okay, mom and dad, this is how you, this is how you uh, make whitewash. This is how you treat tuberculosis. This is how mm-hmm. you set a bone. She was the one who was going to teach her parents. She was she was the one who was going to teach her brothers and sisters. And when she had her own family, she was going to teach her own family what she learned in her domestic science or home ec classes as as well. And in doing so, she was going to help create a better a better nation she learned how to be a good mom and housewife she could then pass on what she learned to her family who would then become good citizens and once we have this nation of good citizens you have a a nation of people who are ready to handle their own destinies and fates and who are ready for self-governance so this idea of governance of the self is intrinsically tied at least in the literature to governance of the nation which I think is really is really cool.
0: I just remembered um, there's this Facebook group. It's called um, "Eldest Daughter in an Asian Household." Oh my god! Did you and see this shirt? <laughs> I, I'm just realizing that this this idea of the eldest daughter doing everything has oh very deep roots um, in education, in colonial education. So yeah. Um, I'm definitely sending this episode to that group <laughs> after this.
1: Also, my favorite of the... I'm not sure if you if you read it, but my favorite talaga, and this has never left my mind in five years. Like, it's just what I Was they had this experiment or this, like, school activity where they had to blind taste test all of these different household substances. Okay, sounds sketchy. So they had to figure out, like, um. With is
0: this salt or is this something else? And yeah, is so this, this like would household be...
1: cleaner or is this tea? You know.
0: And and in the age before the internet, you are literally keeping people alive with this. You're knowledge. Pretty much
1: Wikipedia. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so uh, sanitation was actually a pretty big part of um your discussion because uh, proper hygiene and sanitation needed to be learned and honed by Filipino girls and um it was interesting to me that um sometimes it would be at odds with culture for example um the american knowledge is do not sleep on the floor <laughs> but filipinos would sleep on buri mats um don't eat with your hands but uh, don't eat with your hands on the floor but typically <laughs> we eat on the floor we use our right hand for um getting the food and these um cultural aspects became superstitions that had to be eradicated.
1: Yeah, because it's, again, the, the application of Western values to Filipino bodies. And there are many accounts of Filipinos and American health officials not seeing eye to eye. A good resource for that would be Is it like, is it that kind of podcast where I'm allowed to give sources? Yes, of course. Yes. Okay. So (laughs) I would totally recommend An American Doctor's Odyssey by Dr. Victor Heiser. He was Mm -hmm. stationed here and in India. And one of my favorite anecdotes from an American Doctor's Odyssey is the time that there was an outbreak of, I want to say bubonic plague Mm -hmm. in Manila. If I'm remembering correctly, there was an outbreak of bubonic plague, and he had the idea. Okay, so we need to lessen the rat population in Manila. So let's let's uh, let's put up a reward for rat tails, okay? Because one rat tail equals a dead rat, mm-hmm. and we'll make we'll price it like a certain way. And of course, what did Filipinos do? <laughs> The they bred rats, didn't they? They bred rats, and then they just Yours? cut off the tails, and then they sold them to the Bureau of Health, and that didn't obviously fix the problem. <laughs> <laughs> so it's Dr. Heiser's. Oh, sorry, Dr. Heiser's book is full of very yes. fun anecdotes <laughs> like that about Filipino responses to uh, Westerners particularly the Americans imposing their values and health policies on us.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They think they're smart, but... Hmm. <laughs> but Filipinos smarter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the truth, they say, is out there. Trouble is, the truth sometimes can be bland and uninteresting. subscribe to Dark Theory. Dark Theory is a self-produced Philippine podcast that takes you down a rabbit hole of mystery, conspiracy, and dark twisted tales that blur the boundaries of what you know to be real. Subscribe to A Little Darkness. Listen to Dark Theory, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Anchor.
0: In the past, all writers who have attempted to make a relatively comprehensive survey of Philippine conditions always had a word or two to say on the enviable position which women in the Philippines have for centuries enjoyed, but they usually limited their comments to a word or two. It is only recently, very recently, that the subject of woman has become a question, and today it is recognized as a question of primary importance. One which in its complexity presents phases that call for the greatest consideration. Tarsila Malabanan, University of the Philippines, 1916. An important figure you mentioned in the thesis was Maria Paz Mendoza-Guazon. Yes. She, she seems to be like a type. She, uh, in in type.
1: In my mind, when I was reading about her, she was kind of Goal's. Because she was the first woman to graduate from the UP College mm-hmm. of Medicine in nineteen twelve. She was technically therefore the first Filipino doctor. And she was also the first woman to become full professor at UP. So in mm-hmm. that sense, I'm kind I'm into it. Like the professional aspect, I'm into it. Her what she says, however, not so into it. It's
0: just that she was a product <laughs> of her time and she was sort of trapped in the um, what she wanted to be what she wanted girls to be and what they could be to her knowledge it was like there's so much tension and she said um and I quote girls had to be positive pleasant and pleasing at all times in oh their my God, manner I have of so dress, much to
1: say about this in their bodily
0: <laughs> gestures and in their habits and I thought ooh, she would not like me
1: <laughs> right when I was reading when I was reading her book the my I an ideal Filipino girl. I was like, I am, I am not the ideal Filipino girl. Okay, can I just say, like, my favorite part um, is when she says. <laughs> so, um, for for the people who are listening, the ideal Filipino girl was a book that Paz mendoza Guazon wrote, <laughs> and it was obviously a guidebook written by a Filipina who had been educated under the American colonial education system. And she was writing about what she felt were her ideal qualities in Filipino girls. It wasn't just her writing. She also asked like a lot of very illustrious figures at the time like Manuel, I think Manuel Rojas wrote there as well. So she was asking people to write what their ideal Filipino girl was. And these are all I I could gather that all of the people writing in were adults and definitely um not Filipino girls. And she has this part where you're not where she has like a list of don'ts and you're not supposed to laugh at someone's defects or mm-hmm. Or infirmities. So like that's if someone good that's good that's mm-hmm. good advice, right? You're not allowed to use slang. You shouldn't mm-hmm. use slang, especially Americanisms like gosh or whoa, <laughs> Something like that. Mm-hmm. You have and to be formal. You have to be, you know, prim and proper, PNP. And also, this is my favorite, and this is why I knew that I was not the ideal Filipino girl. Because you are not, you should not. Allow you should never allow people to pay for you because, and she puts this in parenthesis. I think you are not a beggar. Oh, and I was like, (laughs) well,
0: okay. She had she had ideas. It was it was. She had
1: ideas.
0: (laughs) It was such a tension. It was like she wants somebody to be independent, but at the same time, not so independent. It's like a, you know, um, she one really good um. A sentence that encapsulates uh, that is how you should behave in a classroom. She said, be quiet enough to be attractive, but loud enough to be heard by your teacher.
1: I like that because she talks a lot about sound, about mm. voice, about loudness in her mm. entire in her entire book because you're also not allowed to do certain things. Oh my god, I forgot to mention. Um, you're a, you're not allowed to giggle or cry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because those are not appropriate things for girls to do. And all, this is also my favorite. Even if your life is in peril. This is almost a direct quote. You cannot scream or shriek. Okay. So even if you're being held at, held up at knife point, even if you're being dragged away into an L three hundred, you are not allowed to scream.
0: Well, that's just bad survival instincts, but um, <laughs> um to anybody listening, please do scream if
1: you are being, make a sm- be loud. <laughs> occupy space, guys.
0: Please carry an alarm with you.
1: Or like <laughs> a <are> whistle. <laughs> yeah. Um, she also
0: said she also advised girls express in your face and eyes the feeling of deep interest, of good nature, of sincerity, but never of hatred, contempt, and selfishness.
1: I I really <laughs> want to do like a live read of this of this entire book. Maybe, and then... maybe
0: we should try. We should try for a week to do everything she says.
1: Oh, my God. I would fail, like, the very first day.
0: Because I mean, I'm pretty sure. Like, she, when she says, girls had to be positive, pleasant, and pleasing at all times. Ooh, oh, no. I'm, that's like...
1: Mm, have mm. you met us? Obviously, Paz has not met us.
0: Um, she has not met you or me or any of her friends. Hi, Mia. Uh, <laughs> Hi, Mia. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Which is not a bad thing, by the way. <laughs> it's like... We
1: yeah. love Mia. And we love us.
0: Yes. Um, so... The domestic economy. So this is where I met um, Catherine Beecher and Ellen Swallow Richards. Mm -hmm. They had, um, again, they had housekeeping manuals which championed the inclusion of housekeeping and the household arts. Um, But they also uh, recruited and trained female teachers so that women could start to earn a living, which was not possible before. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in the domestic economy, the ideal Filipino girl recognized that her own work of turning the house into a home was significant as, and as important as a man's work. So um, I like that there's recognition of reproductive labor yeah. in in their ideas. It's just that it was an early, like the early roots of reproductive labor because it was very, um, this is your place in the world. And
1: yeah, you're, so, you're a supporting character.
0: Yes, you are not the main character in the narrative. Um, and your the your personal point of view must be supplanted by the broad view of majority, majority welfare. And um, oh, here's a really interesting, I think this was Ellen Swallow Richard's. The maintenance of harmonious relations was key to the ideal Filipino girl's life. Her role was to ensure that nothing that she said or did caused offense to anyone within the family, school, or community. In order to accomplish this, she needed to learn the values of cooperation, order, and cleanliness.
1: <laughs> see, and that and you can see remnants of that in the in the household manuals that Uh, that Filipino girls do study here, that you have to be cooperative, you have to be kind, you have to be pleasing, you have to work with others, you have to ensure harmony. And that is something that Filipinos really love. There's a lot of
0: uh, pressure on women to um, sort of be the harmonious, to keep the peace, to um, and with, again, it's like, again, the the eldest daughter in the Asian household, when you look at these then the complaints of um, girls growing up in uh, with siblings and things like this, it's always you
1: have to be the patient one, you have to pick up after everyone, you have to be the mature one. you have to be the mature one. and and, and it, it reminds hmm. sorry, um, it reminds me that women, like especially like you like going off of what you said, Eldest girls, eldest daughters in Asian households always have to do both the physical labor and the emotional labor.
0: Mm.
1: Like the majority of that is on you.
0: The intellectual labor too. You have to be the tutor too.
1: And yeah, you also have to be. Yeah.
0: And um, you have to manage the finances. Yeah. And
1: in the context of the. Filipino girl in the American colonial period you also had to teach your family about what you learned in school mm-hmm. so they wouldn't run off and develop tuberculosis or, or whatever.
0: Keeping the society alive
1: quite literally literally like if if we weren't around everybody would die. <laughs> that is what that is the sense that I'm getting from yeah. all of these yeah the household manuals. Yet.
0: There were also passages about, um, of course, how to behave in relation to men, um, and it was always a secondary role. It's always a, a lot of um, passages about keeping yourself small, not necessarily, but but they completely acknowledge that you are just as smart, just as tough, just as strong, but don't Tell them that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but you have to stay at home and maintain the harmony and be quiet and be attractive enough or be loud enough that your teacher hears you, but not loud enough that people complain that you're too loud.
0: And so... Uh, modern girls had a bitter pill to swallow that in spite of their education and societal contributions, men still believed that the government of the people, for the people, and by the people was actually a government of men, by and for men alone. Girls were expected to cultivate their intellects, yet behave like fools, to have keen eyes, but to show you not, to tie your articulate tongue and suppress the throbbing of your heart. To live a lifeless life.
1: God, you know, I was that so was emotional. That was writing That was I was, writing. I was so emotional writing this because I was like, oh my God, all the injustices to women in the past. And then... And uh, the yeah. present. And, 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 and that persist in the present. <laughs> because you can still see people thinking like this in the present.
0: And even with... Um, when Because as we know, a woman is running for president there's i've i hear it a lot in real life uh oh my she god. can't she can't possibly be president she's a woman she, oh my okay. god
1: sometimes like in I don't 2021 argue,
0: like, oh. come sometimes, on guys yeah sometimes people are too far gone and you're like mm, this is not i can't <laughs> um, yeah just yeah so going back The problem with an idealized girl, as you said, uh, as with any idealized construct, is that they ultimately fail to live up to these high moral standards. And (laughs) I was so proud of Paz Marquez Benitez, who um, is an amazing writer. Mm -hmm. Um,
1: Dead stars. We love it.
0: Dead stars. And uh, she was actually the captain of Manila's first girls' basketball team. Oh, my God. I love that story. And she played tennis in European dress, which was a scandal at the time. Yes. Um, You're showing your knees. Oh,
1: Oh my God. (laughs) My eyes.
0: And um, so there was backlash. There were people who were trying to argue against this. Um, Mm -hmm. Guillermo B. Guevara said that... um, they will not abide by the by the hearth, but demand the single standard. They want careers, not babies. They want the ballot. They want everything the men have. and their avidness to be on the same footing with men, they would even wear pants. Like so hearing this today is, uh, it's a, it's a
1: journey. <laughs> this was that issue about. So there was a controversy, I think, in the thirties, where girls wanted to wear PE clothes that were like more shorts and t-shirt rather than like full-length dresses. Mm-hmm. And that was like front page news. Because people are like, look at them. They're becoming too American. They are too modern. And you have all of these thought, you know, thought pieces like, what happened to the Dalaga of the past? And it's just it's
0: just that you you have to keep reminding yourself this is a product of their time. The this was a period of great change people were struggling with ideas so when you when you got to the part about the pioneers of this period mm-hmm. I, I was like oh thank you um so <laughs> there was there was a lot going on at my alma mater the University of the Philippines Woo. so there was the uh interesting i I did not hear of this when I was studying there but there was a UP women's club
1: yes so very there active. was
0: um, Virginia Oteza, who eventually became the first woman in Baguio to be elected vice mayor and counselor. Mm-hmm. Um, there was Daisy P. Ontiveros, who founded the Barangay Theater Guild in 1939. And um, Corazon Juliano, who in 1954 became the second woman appointed judge at the Court of First Instance and later the Agrava Board, the fact-finding missions. Um and Nelly Burgos became uh, one of the presidents of the largest women's organization in the state university. And some of them, uh, women at this time, became uh, they began to live independently of their families, Maria Solome Marquez and Ursula Sevilla. Um, there were artists, Angela Gloria Trinidad Tarosa Subido, Edith Tiempo. Um, they became employed as telephone operators, sales girls, Ushers, and um, what I remember is very. Uh, I get. I'm gonna go back to pharmacy. I did not know that that was considered the ideal job for a yeah, woman at the time. you could
1: work from home, mm-hmm. and um, a lot of people likened it to just cooking. So uh, you could just like do it at home and while you were working, you could also look after your kids and do all the household chores so you were having you know you had it all if you were a female pharmacist
0: there were there was um, teaching and pharmacy was pretty much you know the two things and then um, and then they became telephone operators and uh, sales girls and ushers because of the feminine, voice that they were um, trained to have um, so there's a there's a change here I could see like this must have been exciting and frustrating and um, they, they all they also uh, there were also actresses now that were um, in the mainstream Rosa del Rosario was the first darna and Tita Duran of course and so which brings us to the advice columns <laughs> oh my gosh yeah <laughs> which were fascinating because there were so many things that were not taught in school so many things that were taboo and so filipino girls from the middle and upper classes in manila from 1908 to 1939 who could afford the i'm guessing the magazine subscription i'm guessing this mm-hmm. was not free
1: um yeah you had to pay for it
0: uh, Filipino girls were not the virgins that history or their parents, other relatives, Mrs. Fuller, Mrs. Butt, and Mrs. Mendoza Guanzon hoped them to be. Surprise. Uh, <laughs> surprise. Surprise. Um, I like this. There was a there was a columnist there. Her name was Yvonne, no last name given, but yeah. ultimately the attempts of the madres to keep girls in check would fail as girls of our age. Uh, Yvonne notes, with no small amount of pride, are smarter than the smartest mother superior.
1: <laughs> I love that. I love that. It shows you how crafty girls have to be to survive.
0: And it's just, and, and it is worthy of note that while many Filipino men, young and old, spoke of their ideal Filipino girl, things started turning around because Filipino girls also began writing about their ideal Filipino men.
1: Oh, I love that too.
0: Um, there are, of course, many controversies um, uh, from employment to Western fashion and beauty products to consumerism, um, wearing shorts when you're playing sports. Um, and girls were sent to dormitories where they were not under so much supervision. And so they became crafty in the <laughs> areas of courtship and romance. And they began questioning marriage. That was a. Interesting development too, because now they could lose something. They would lose their freedom, um, perhaps be tied to the home, and some of them might not want that.
1: Yeah, I. It's interesting to see through the advice columns that I researched the problems that girls face today are still problems that we. I think that you know they're just tied to our biology, I guess, because the same considerations, the same questions are there. Like, do I, do I, do I have to get married? do Mm -hmm. i want to get married you know we're thinking about these things we're thinking about uh we're thinking about romance we're thinking about our sexual partners we're still thinking about these things we're still concerned about these things as women today and i what i like about the advice columns is that they're so they're so deeply personal Mm. Very, very personal. They ask about all sorts of things, and there were different advice columns dedicated to different things. So there was an advice column just for health stuff, and there are advice columns for romance and you know other relationships. And this this was like Google for them mm-hmm, at that yeah. time because be, you could not you could not Google search in 1930. Am I pregnant? You would you would you would and you couldn't go to a doctor. So you would write anonymously into this advice column and ask and you give your symptoms and wait for your answer to be published. And you you couldn't ask if you were uncomfortable talking about menstruation, something that is so commonplace to us today. And you didn't want to talk about it with your mom, or your mom didn't want to talk about it. Your only way to get information judgment free. What's to go to these advice
0: columnists? Um, And so they would ask things about my period is late or there's too much pain. I'm experiencing too much pain during my period. Is this normal? Should I just quit school and go back to the province? And (laughs) yeah, there was, there was no Google as you said. (laughs)
1: There was, there was, there's no Google for that. You had to, you had to go to these advice columnists and, It wasn't just girls. I also found it interesting that it's not just girls writing. It's also moms.
0: Oh, right. How to
1: raise their girls. Yeah, because these, I think it's important for people to understand the moral authority that these advice columns held for people during this time. Again, because it's so hard to get information to very specific things. The only way to do that is to... If you don't want to talk about it with people you know, you write to an advice column. So there was one woman who said, my daughter is 13 years old. How do I raise her properly? And how do I tell her that she's going to meet physical and moral dangers, that she will have menstruation? I'm quoting from the actual thing, and she will have menstruation and that she should be careful in her relations with the opposite sex. Please instruct me on this matter. And it tells you, too, that these are not things that are taught to girls during that time. So this mom probably doesn't even know herself. And she here she is expected to raise her daughter in a, I guess, like a a moral, spiritual way.
0: And during a time of great change, where there are probably more opportunities that are open to the daughters. um, And of course, there's also that fear, how are they going to um, go out into the world that might be hostile to them and so it might be might be easier to just stay at home and so the girls growing up in this period I don't have to so there's that um, really just this intense so it's so fraught for um, all of these great thinkers to come out and um, again so many passages from that you cited <laughs> here it's just, I, I just found myself completely agreeing like, yes, yes, you should definitely be asking these questions about your life and your future. Um, so
1: and these are a great way to learn about other women
0: mm-hmm. because
1: I'm forgetting who, who wrote about it, but I think it was I, I think it was Paz Mendoza Guazon. Or Paz Marquez Benitez. Oh, no, I'm confusing them. But (laughs) one of them said that we don't like to... Like, Philippine women don't like to write about ourselves. Especially when it comes Mm -hmm. to autobiographies. Mm -hmm. We are, for some reason, hesitant to write about ourselves. And maybe that's a testament to how other-thinking we are. How we always think about others before ourselves. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Especially as eldest daughters in an Asian family. (laughs) but
0: <laughs> <laughs> which is apparently a very has very deep historical roots that apparently. um i guess that would give many people more context as to because if you're not the eldest daughter in an asian household you don't think about these things these are very unique <laughs> circumstances where you're expected there's so much pressure
1: right you're, that's That's what you should title this episode.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Never mind American colonial period. Let's talk about eldest daughters in an Asian household, American colonial period edition. (laughs) Exactly.
1: So, as I'm sorry, as I was saying before I derailed myself. These advice columns are actually a good way to find out about the mindsets of girls and these women's magazines, these girls' magazines like The Women's World, which I know, ironic title, but it's it's directed towards college-aged girls. The, these are good ways to find out about the voices that perhaps were hesitant to write autobiographies but had no hesitation about writing to a to an anonymous advice column. And it's through these advice columns that I think we have a better picture. And through the women's world, actually, that we have a better picture and understanding of the mindsets of girls during this time period. Because not the women that you mentioned, I don't think the majority of them wrote mem- proper memoirs or autobiographies of their own. So the only clues we have about their lives, you know, if we're to look at public records, are these. Advice are these, are these uh, either these advice columns or these articles written about them in Women's World or other similar published material? As I was reading, I really had
0: a feeling of, look how far, how different our lives are now where you and I are on a podcast that I produce from my bedroom. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's just, um, and we have no problems with... Uh, writing about our day on social media or um, uh, even submitting our thoughts to newspapers. And it's just so far, not far enough maybe, but mm-hmm. so far. And it's really interesting to look at um, how they express themselves in times of in a time of great tension. And there's also, we're still, um, there's new problems now, but there are, um there are th- so many things we can still learn from what they went through and um so I just really liked uh this thesis because it examined uh where did you find these magazines by the way
1: I okay so some of them I think we had one okay so as i'm sure everybody who listens to your podcast knows you are An academic yourself so you know Mm -hmm. the struggle and you know (laughs) you you know the hustle so in our library at universe in our university we have like we had i think one issue and of course it lists like the volume number and then the year so i was Mm -hmm. like okay so where do i find all of the other issues because they're around and so a lot of (laughs) they're, they're here they must be here somewhere someone must have a copy and that led me to the Artigas, the Lopez Library. Mm, right, right. They have a lot of them. And also, um, UP Library, I think. So I spent many hours <laughs> in both of those institutions.
0: And um, I guess also because uh, there was a certain class of women who had the privilege to write at this time. It's like yeah. university women. And I would suppose elites who could afford an education here or abroad. Um, so tip for those who want to do research on girls and girlhood, uh, there are the libraries in Ortigas and UP are good places to start.
1: Did they move though the Lopez library? I think they were moving their library? although I'm not super sure.
0: I have no idea I've been there once, interestingly enough for a women's conference. So
1: <laughs> it all comes back to win. It all
0: comes back. Um, uh, anything else you want to say to our
1: uh, listeners? I just want to say, if you are interested in doing studies on colonial girlhood, hit me up. There are not a lot of people doing research on girlhood, and when I wrote this, I was pretty much like one out of two or three people and the two or three other the the two other people i know of weren't really doing girlhood which is why i was able to find so much in the archives and write i think in my opinion something something really fresh it's an underexplored topic in my opinion there is so much to learn about girls and learning about girls helps us understand why we Think about women the way we do today. And that is always so important to know.
0: Similarly with this podcast, there was no podcast like it when I started. And remember, <laughs> if, if you're not going to do it, if the girls out there are not going to do it, nobody's going to do it. So we, it. <laughs> we have to do it ourselves. Let the women do the work.
1: <laughs> yes, take up space, guys.
0: Learn from... All these narratives. Um, So that's it for Girlhood in the American Colonial Period with Tala Wong. Thank you so much for being here,
1: Tala. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor to be part of this very groundbreaking podcast.
0: Producing a podcast like this takes a lot of time and research. If you like what we do, consider joining our Patreon like Christina, Raul, Raymond, Chito, Matt, Shireen, Chanda, Yati, Kara, and Mando. Who have been supporting this podcast. Give as little as one dollar to get a copy of the show notes with all the references, a shout out at the end of the next episode, and the occasional bonus episode. There's one coming out in the next few weeks. And if you can't join us on Patreon, just tell your friends about this podcast, that works too. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at pod That's herstory, S-E-A, pod. There's so many more stories to tell, and we're just getting started. This podcast was written, hosted, and edited by Agus Ramirez. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again next time. Season two is going to be very exciting. Sampai jumpa lagi.
1: you are like everything is covered up.
0: Can I wait for the barking to stop?
1: <laughs> do you want me to? Do you want no. me to repeat that?
0: No, it's good because I can just mute that from. But, like, why are they barking?
1: For me, (laughs) it's the roosters. Like, (laughs) it's like 3 a.m., and I'm trying to record my lecture for class, and I'm like, why is that rooster awake?